3: Hello, and welcome to the Too Big to Fail, Too Furious episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of a week in which we had another major bank fiasco. I am um, I do apologize, and when I say I, I mean Felix Aminabaxios, that is me. I'm here with Emily Abaxios. P- Hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And yes, I I apologize for a third week in a row of talking about banking, but I promise it's the last. No more banking next week. This week, we talk about Credit Suisse and UBS. Next week, we talk about work from home or something like that. We'll just do something completely different. We are also going to talk about deposit insurance, um, which you probably care about. I don't know. We're going to persuade you that it's important and the politics thereof. And we're going to talk about TikTok and the politics thereof. And we're going to talk about Rupert Murdoch in the Slate Plus segment. And then we're going to have a Slate Money Succession podcast on Monday. It's all very exciting, but keep on listening to Slate Money. So, guys, we had a major upheaval in the world of global banking this week, which I feel like we've now had three weeks in a row where we're leaving with banking, which is a bit much. And apologies to those of you who aren't as interested in banks as I am. But, you know, I did start my career at Euro Money Magazine, which is all about banks. And this is just amazing to me that Switzerland now has basically one big bank. When I was a cub reporter, it was Relatively normal. It had three. It had SBC and UBS and Credit Suisse. And now, long after SBC and UBS merged, Credit Suisse has failed into the arms of UBS um, in a shotgun marriage that was engineered by the Swiss regulators and that shareholders had no say in. And there is now one bank in Switzerland and a lot of Credit Suisse investment bankers are sort of dazed and confused and thinking they're probably going to be out of a job soon. Um, Emily, this is a big deal, no?
2: Felix, I guess it is a big deal. Clearly, one of the biggest banks in the world has failed and been forced to marry or been absorbed by another really big bank. Um but I have failed to become engaged with this big banking story, despite your obvious enthusiasm for this big bank story. I have on my notes for the show, I wrote a question, which is, Felix, why should Americans care about this story? And I want you to make me care, and the listeners and Elizabeth too, maybe Elizabeth already cares, she can say, <laughs> this you care, about, right? this, about this story.
0: Uh, I care a little bit. I, I, I don't find you know the the news surprising at all. It, it, to me, it's just a miracle that Credit Suisse didn't collapse before this. It's you know mm-hmm. been it's had scandals and and problems for probably a decade now. Uh, but I do think it's important in the sense that it affects the global banking system, which which is going to have blowback for the U.S. However, I might be a little what burned out on, on banking. You know. Global markets are reacting to the news, uh, and, and I think it's you know it's not clear whether um, the move has really shorted up confidence in the banking system at large, because it's not clear that you know people are really differentiating between Credit Suisse's situation and some of the other problems in the banking sector. I think a lot of people are just conflating them all.
2: Yes, that's true, and and the this we are recording on friday morning and there's a lot of reports that deutsche bank now is kind of its share share price is falling felix hates that metric i'm sure he'll explain why um and people are now worried about deutsche bank which again i'm like oh another european bank i'm going to have to figure out why i care about so
3: back to you <laughs> the fir- the first thing to say is that yeah when a big too big to fail bank um A G-SIB, as it's known, a global systemically important bank, um, has to be rescued by the government and or intervened and or sold in a flat fire sale to to a rival. That's a big deal, right? There are only 30 of these institutions in the world. One of them has just effectively failed. Another one, Deutsche Bank, which I guess like if anyone had to put up a list of the two banks most likely, the two G-SIBs most likely to fail, it would be Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank um yeah is is now feeling the heat and it kind of stands to reason right um for a couple of things going on here first is that because these banks are too big to fail and because we lived through the financial crisis of 2008 we understand that these banks need to be regulated much more assiduously and they need to adhere to much higher standards in terms of capital and bank regulation and stuff like that. And in fact, there is even a conversation in the US right now, that part of the reason why Silicon Valley Bank failed was because it was it had managed to get out of those enhanced oversight standards, because it wasn't too big to fail, it was small enough to fail. Um, But people are saying maybe it wouldn't have failed if it had been held to these higher standards. And so, and so now with Credit Suisse, everyone is quite reasonably saying, this is a regulatory fail- failure on the part of the Swiss authorities. They should never have let Credit Suisse get to this terrible position. Um, and so what they're basically then just to follow the next shoe to drop would be the German authorities, right? Looking after Deutsche Bank, which has had, you know, a basically zero share price for a long time now um no one really thinks it's an inherently profitable bank that's going to make lots of money for shareholders it's a very important bank um but the shareholders don't seem to have a lot of um, you know residual claims on it and and so they're saying well the the regulators might well you know force something a bit like the swiss regulators did you know they might um force it to raise more capital they might raise down some of those cocoa bonds that, you know, got written down in the Swiss case, you know, or so on and so forth to strengthen Deutsche Bank. And if they were to do so, that would naturally be bad for the share price. So that explains why the shares are down, it would also probably be bad for certain types of debt instruments. So that explains why the credit default swaps are up. And, you know, the idea is that I think of a bank like a car, right? Cars have become a lot safer over the years because we've built in protection protocols right you have crumpled zones you have airbags you have things that explode which keep you safer right and the you that we're keeping safe here is the depositors basically the people at the center of the bank who can't afford to lose money and then around them is this whole edifice of AT ones and equity and stuff like that that you crumple zones that can absorb a bunch of hits to keep depositors safe and when you run into a banking crisis and like you know we are in a banking crisis right now not a particularly bad one but we are in the bank banking crisis though those crumple zones and airbags and things are designed to take hits and what we're looking at when we look at the market whether it's an AT ones or credit default swaps or share prices or anything else is market working as intended and as regulators intended, which is those things taking hits and and the depositors being safe. Like what we didn't have in um, Switzerland in, in the case of Credit Suisse was a bank run. Right, not, we, you didn't have Credit Suisse depositors, or well, not very many of them anyway. Um, you know, worried that they would lose their deposits and like taking their money to UBS instead. Um, so, yeah, I feel like this is the bank system working. Um, but, yeah, if we go from 30 GSIBs to 29, if we go from three Swiss banks to one, um, if Credit Suisse, which, remember, is a major investment bank as well as just a wealth management platform, basically ceases to exist, Along with, you know, all of its grand plans that's spinning off first Boston and all of that kind of stuff. That's a major recalibration of the international financial architecture and it's worth thinking about and caring about.
2: Because it's a major recalibration of the financial architecture. But what is well, it?
3: Well, I I think let me let me just let me just try and make one more attempt to to persuade you that this matters. <laughs> what this shows and i think why americans should care is that we now have the tools to do this right that's good that like basel 3 and the regulatory architecture that sprang up after 2008 um gave the swiss national bank in Finra, which is the financial regulatory authority in switzerland the ability to just go in and solve this problem what Switzerland didn't have was a Lehman moment, right? What Switzerland didn't have was a major bank just declaring bankruptcy and all hell-breaking loose. We had, it was rushed, it was slightly chaotic, various people were unhappy for various reasons. But what we had was a situation where everyone who mattered, which is like the depositors and various, you know, senior bondholders and and interbank loans and that kind of stuff, repo transactions like all of those people all of the bank counterparties like if you if you bought a structured product from credit Suisse where like it pays um it pays you the rate of return on the stock market but it caps your downside. So you can't lose more than 10%. And the reason it does that is because it caps your app upside at so many other percent, whatever, you know, one of these things that wealth management clients buy all the time. um, You are not worried about counterparty risk, right? It could be the case that like, if the stock market falls, credit Suisse owes you a bunch of money. And that that kind of obligation of credit Suisse is 100% fine. Right. No one is that, No one reached the point of being worried about Credit Suisse counterparty risk because we now have the ability to rescue banks or to merge them into other banks or to do or to, you know, send the Cocos down to zero in a way that protects all of the people that we need to protect.
2: Yeah, but what You about- have just explained why I'm bored by this story, because it is a story of things working. And I am a journalist and I'm inherently less interested in things working than things not working. So that maybe why I'm less interested in the story. Well, it also seems like story.
0: Think things uh, could have been in a position where they didn't work because, you know, there, there wasn't a bank run, but there were $147 million worth of deposits that were pulled out of the bank in the last quarter. Um, and without the Swiss government kind of forcing this merger, I mean, I, I don't see anything that would have necessarily prevented a bank run in a panicky moment.
3: So, no, I mean, the the forcing the merger is the solution, right? That's the whole point. Yeah, Credit Suisse left to its own devices was spiraling downwards in, in a very unsustainable way. And so regulators need a way to resolve those kind of situations. And what we have just learned is they have a way to resolve those situations. And they can do things like writing the AT1s down to zero. And they can do things like, change the law to prevent shareholder votes and they can do things just like like forcing ubs to buy credit suites whether they like it or not and all of these things are things that they had to do in order to prevent something bad you're absolutely right that it could have been bad if they hadn't done that my point is that we now know that we have the tools to prevent it being bad and that regulators are willing and able to use those tools
0: yeah, I guess I'm um, just uh, – I'm thinking about your contention that banking is uh, categorically safer now. There was a good opinion piece in Bloomberg, I think, this morning uh, or this week um, arguing that, you know, a lot of what we're dealing with has to do with the total dismantling of Glass-Steagall, which happened quite a while ago, but created a lot of the too-big-to-fail banks um, so that now well, – you know, that's there's okay
3: (laughs) I mean even wait hang on a second even Emily is shaking her head at that one but Glass-Steagall Glass-Steagall is an American law that has nothing to do with Switzerland Credit Suisse didn't even have a commercial bank in the US are we talking about the
0: overall overall banking system and how many of the g subs are American banks I'm taking it for granted that Uh, this is a global problem if a bunch of banks fail in the US or in Europe Sure. But would, like, would you argue that you know, the, the, the of... Credit Suisse uh, failure is completely unrelated to banking problems in the American banking sector? And it's just I, I don't think
3: there are banking problems in the American banking sector. I think the American the American banking sector, at least if we're looking at the GSIBs, the American yeah. banking sector is fine. The the American GSIBs have all seen deposit inflows rather than outflows. Right. Um, that is
2: the story I wrote this week, in which I said that too big to fail is good now
3: (laughs) yeah too big to fail is like so long as you have like so long as you have the tools to prevent you know a catastrophic bank failure then too big to fail is good in terms of bank bank failure right the the problem with too big to fail was bad because if you have a bank like lehman brothers that was too big to fail and then it failed then you cause a financial crisis if you have a bank Correct. like Credit Suisse, which is too big to fail, and then it fails, and then like you have the tools to resolve it, that's fine.
2: Right. They fixed the to fail part by strengthening regulations after the financial crisis with Dodd-Frank in the US. I don't know about credit. I don't know about Switzerland as much as Felix does. But they tightened up regulations. So at least for our too big to fail or our GSIBs face tighter regulations and for now appear to be safer places for people to put their money precisely because we know Americans know that they're not going to be allowed to fail in such a way to blow things up.
3: And then I'd also add in terms of Glass-Steagall that like however many American institutions there are on the list and we probably done the counting up more than I have there are really only three that include both a commercial bank and an investment bank right it's Bank of America Citibank and um jp morgan and so like all of the rest of them like are either sort of one or the other you don't like and plus it's you know even if you spun off the even if you forced them to break up right even if you forced bank of america jp morgan and Citibank to break off their investment banking arms from their commercial banking arms all three of those commercial banking arms would still be too big to fail and probably the investment banking arms would be as well
2: that's the thing I was thinking about after I wrote this story um, this week is like maybe you fix the to fail part in that there's all these um, laws and regulations to ensure that if a bank is tottering, it gets it, its dissolution is handled in a way that doesn't blow up the economy. But the too big part remains. like we we have these gigantic banks that have to ha- are basically like quasi, nationalized institutions, like that's the choice we made instead of breaking up and having smaller ones that could explode without blowing up everything. We decided to have big ones that we kind of make sure they're ring fenced and regulated and have to adhere to rules. And I don't know if that's better or not. Like, is it, is it better to have just a few big banks that you feel safe?
3: Yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit last week, Emily, which is that there isn't a country on planet Earth which has a lot of small enough to fail banks that work like, you know, in some kind of weird utopia, perhaps like that works, but in practice it doesn't exist. And then on top of that, the fact is that when you have like, you know, thousands of small enough to fail banks, that system is fine when one bank fails. But the thing that causes one bank to fail is the thing that causes a 1,000 banks to fail. And when you have a 1,000 banks fa- failing, then you have the SNL crisis of the 1980s, and that's just as bad. That's just as systemic, right? That any one bank might be small enough to fail, but collectively, if they all do the same thing at the same time, and banks are herd animals just like venture capitalists, then you still wind up with a system of you know interconnected banks that are collectively too-big-to-fail.
2: Okay, maybe my, my follow-on thought, which maybe I already talked about last week, you'll tell me if I did, but if we have these big, we've decided it's good to have these too-big-to-fail banks as long as they're regulated well and blah, 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 it's good, but they're quasi-nationalized. So why do the executives at these banks get to make a bajillion dollars? if they're depend they're not really they're not really private companies, right? I mean, they would right. say they That's are, true. but clearly like they're very dependent on on the United States and the federal government and regulation and all of the all of the the state support. Like why do we pretend these are private companies and treat their executives the way they're treated doesn't make sense to me really. Investment banks To go back to Elizabeth and Glass Steagall, like, why do they get to do like, like, I thought a bank is a public good. Like, this is what they taught me in elementary school. It takes my money and it lends it to the farmers and it lends it to um, people building offices and shopping malls and businesses, small business owners. No one taught me like banks are a public good, they create crazy and they create these interesting instruments that really rich people buy to help them make money and the federal government's backstopping that like what why is that a public good like let the wealthy people figure out another way
3: well the the wealthy people have figured out another way right and it's called investment banking and capital markets Mm -hmm. and there is this natural um you know, economy of scale you can call it or just like if you're a big company then at some point you start graduating from, lent- from issuing loans to issuing bonds right from borrowing money to the bank to issuing a bond and you're you know there's a lot of reason why your banker the person who understands your business and who has been banking you um why that person why you would want that person to understand both the bond market and the loan market so that they can offer you both products, and you can choose intelligently between the two. Like it does make sense for the commercial bank and the investment bank to be the same person in that sense, right? And as as we said, like, it doesn't help in terms of too big to fail if you split off the investment banks, right? Goldman Sachs is an investment bank, it has, you know, I mean, I guess it has like Marcus or whatever. But if it spins off, it's still it's basically an investment bank. And it's too big to fail. There are lots of investment banks that are too big to fail. Like, be, Just being an investment bank doesn't mean you're small enough to fail. So M- Morgan Stanley is a huge investment bank that is too big to fail. So, so the point is that what we are doing is, pre- is precisely what you said, which is that we are telling these too big to fail banks that the government is basically giving them a subsidy in terms of this relatively explicit statement that they will be there for them in case of emergency. And that is a valuable subsidy that is worth money to them. And the therefore, if you are one of these banks, if you're one of these GSibs then what you need to do is pay what's known as a GSib surcharge, you need to basically give the government more money, you need to keep much more have capital, higher, higher capital reserves. Um, it is more expensive, significantly more expensive to be a too big to fail bank than it is to be a small enough to fail bank. And so the government is sort of effectively taxing too big to fail precisely to for that em- reason that you were talking about, because they have that implicit sur- that that implicit subsidy.
0: Yeah, but to okay. to Emily's point, you know, the, the SVB situation is is a good example of where you know the GSIPS pay into this uh, for some amount of insurance, and then the government decides that you know, the, the ceiling on deposit insurance should be higher. And so they say, okay, in this case, we're just going to guarantee everything. Um, if the deposit ceiling goes away, you know we have universal deposits, which is on the table now somewhat. Um, is there an argument for having the GSIBs pay a lot more than they're already paying in order to kind of uh, cover that cost?
3: Let's, let's, have a, let's have a quick break and then talk about deposit insurance because that's a whole other question.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2%,
3: So, Elizabeth, deposit insurance, like, explain to me why you think it's the GSIBs that should pay more, because clearly it wasn't the GSIBs who had the highest percentage of uninsured deposits, right? It was people like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and First Republic
0: Bank. I think if we end up with universal deposit insurance, that everyone should probably pay more, not just the debs. Right. I mean, that, that's I clearly, I, think, uh, I
3: mean that, that that goes without saying. I think right that the deposit insurance is um, you have to pay an insurance premium to the FDIC. The FDI that insurance premium is levied on all of your insured deposits. So right now it's levied levied on the deposits that you have under two hundred fifty thousand dollars. If they literally took the ceiling away and and by law change that to, like, unlimited deposit insurance, then that deposit premium would be levied on all deposits. And then if, to the extent that you had large quantities of uninsured deposits, you would be paying a premium on those as well. That's that's how deposit insurance works.
2: Let's back up and talk about, just, like, lay the, the ground for why we're talking about deposit insurance. Though so maybe listeners know at this point, but feels worth kind of recapping the situation, right, a little bit?
3: Go, go for it.
2: OK, so Silicon Valley Bank has failed ninety ninety what is it? About 90% of its deposits were uninsured, meaning they were above the limit for FDIC insurance, which is $250,000. Pretty unusual for the proportion of uninsured deposits to be that high. Um, and anyway, it failed. And one of the problems was, oh my god, are all these uninsured depositors going to lose all their money? And um, Treasury and the White House and the FDIC decided, no, we're gonna make everyone whole. We're gonna make it all right. So then it's sort of like opened this basically huge can of worms for all for everyone in the country, um, and has become this like really int- this really like weird th- issue basically. Um, Last week, Janet Yellen was at the Senate and a senator from Oklahoma was just like, if my local community bank, um, you know, went under the way Silicon Valley Bank went under, would you step in and make um, uninsured depositors whole? And she basically said no. And that kind of went viral. And then she has spoken about this Wait, now, I think, let, two let me, or three let more me times. In
3: here, Emily. She did not mm-hmm. say no. She did not say She no. didn't
2: say yes. She, she didn't, didn't say, yes. say yes
3: but she didn't say no um what like yeah <laughs> right like, um <laughs> she has been strongly implying yes what the Federal right Reserve strongly implying chair, yes
2: as we all know is not the same thing as saying yes
3: yes but it's clearly ask not the me same if thing i want to meet no. for
2: lunch later maybe so like, I think
3: no. I, I mean I'm, I was with you all the way until when you said she said no because <laughs> she didn't say no. She's strong she, yeah, she didn't go as far as yet. say
2: no. Yeah, she didn't go as far as to say no, but I think because she didn't go as far as to say yes, it really didn't make the issue any better and has spent now this previous week um basically trying to walk the same line where she says Deposits are secure, but she doesn't say uninsured deposits are secure. And it's taken this like part of banking. I think that no one was really thinking about that much before, and has made it an issue that is in need of resolving. And now there's all this talk about raising the limit, like Elizabeth said, or getting rid of the limit. Yeah, so. I
0: think there's uh, you know there are also some in betweens in in terms of uh, you know the status quo and completely universal insurance, mm-hmm. uh, including yeah, just
2: raising it a little bit more raising
0: it mm-hmm. more, but also including different provisions for businesses, for example, to have different constraints because they have payrolls to make. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, what do we think is likely to happen and if they do just raise the ceiling? How is that determined? Because the last time they did that was 2008. And I think it's widely agreed that the 250k cap is somewhat arbitrary. So where would they well, land? It's a is decision. Right? Well, presumably there's some kind of, you know, policy analysis that goes into that. Uh, I don't think it's totally figure in the air. It's earth.
2: actually kind of weird that I mean it hasn't been adjusted for inflation or anything. So I think if it had been, it would already be at like three twenty or something like that. Yeah, um, it's kind of weird that it just stays where it stays. But every time it's been raised in modern history, it's because some crisis is afoot. <laughs> it was raised during savings and loan crisis, and then it was raised again in in 08 And I don't know if this counts as a crisis right now. Do you guys think?
3: So okay, so I need to jump in here. The first thing is that it's not going to get raised. It wouldn't help, right? The if you raised it from two hundred fifty thousand dollars to four hundred thousand dollars, then the percentage of uninsured deposits at Any bank you care to mention would not meaningfully change. Silicon Valley Bank would still have been 90 plus percent uninsured. You know, most with what we're talking about is corporate transaction accounts with, you know, 10, $50 million in them, then fiddling around with the deposit insurance rate and moving it up from 250,000 to, you know, whatever it would be, like even 500,000 wouldn't make any difference. So they're not going to do that because it, it's, it's a solution in search of a problem. The problem was never individuals with $300,000 in their account who are worried about that extra marginal $50,000. Like, that Like is not the issue facing America right now. So, yeah, it's not going to get ra- raised. Raising it wouldn't help. Let's just like move that off the table.
2: Wait, um, I'm going to push back a little. To my,
3: okay.
2: I'm already regret doing this, but <laughs> it's not about it's not about will like the percentage of uninsured depositors at the banks change if the cap is raised. It's about like sending the message that we're doing something about this that's real instead of making statements that are neither no nor yes. Sure. It's it's just right. a, it's a message you, meant to ensure to... trust, and that's the problem.
3: Right. Yes, right, absolutely but my point is that if you want to send a message that you're doing something real then fiddling around with the deposit cap and moving it from one six-figure sum to another six-figure sum is not going to send that message because in, in fact it's going to be worse right in fact it would send mm-hmm. a bad message and all of the bank stocks would fall because if you raise the deposit cap tomorrow from 250,000 to 400,000 say right that is at that point, a very clear message that all deposits over four hundred thousand are not insured. Right now, we have a pretty clear message that deposits over two hundred fifty thousand are insured. They're just not quite coming up and saying so explicitly, but they're definitely saying so implicitly. Um, we, we, if you if you raised it to four hundred k, then that would send a message that deposits over four hundred k were not insured, which would be worse.
0: Yeah, we should also mention that there's another option on the table where the deposit insurance doesn't get raised, but there are some congressional officials that are talking about using the exchange stabilization fund, which is controlled by the Treasury Department, and it's used to kind of buy and sell currencies, but has also been used to backstop in emergency situations. So there, there's a way to kind of potentially repurpose that so that you can temporarily authorize an increase or, or, you know, remove the cap on deposits. Uh, but it's not a permanent thing.
3: So they actually already did use the exchange tra- stabilization fund mm-hmm. to backstop the Fed liquidity discount window, right? Uh, basically, what happened on the Sunday after Silicon Valley Bank failed was that they did two things. One was that they insured all of the deposits of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. That was a very clear signal that the FDIC was willing and able to insure all uninsured deposits. There is no rule, by the way, that the FDIC is only allowed to insure the first $250,000 of deposits, right? If you go into your bank and you see the sign saying like, FD with a big like brass sign saying FDIC on it, what it says in very, very clear letters was all deposits insured to at least $250,000. $250,000 has always been the minimum that deposits are insured to. It has never been a maximum. So the FDIC is always capable of insuring more. And as we saw in the cases of SCB and um, Signature Bank, they can absolutely and did insure everything and they can do that with any bank that fails any time they want. And they can do that very easily just by saying, we're worried about contagion and there's a systemic something, something, and bang, they can do the whole thing. And it is basically certain, if you listen to what Yellen and Powell have been saying over the past couple of weeks, that any bank that fails in the next you know few months will be treated exactly the same way. There is no way they are going to let a, you know, another bank just set off another panic, they will insure everyone. So that is the message that they have been sending. They just haven't said that explicitly. And it it's worries not the message me that they have getting said out there. It. It's not the message that's getting out there because they haven't said it explicitly. And so for me, the obvious thing to do, which is free, which doesn't cost anybody anything and doesn't need any kind of legislation and doesn't need to use the exchange stabilization front doesn't need to do anything is to just come out and say, Look, for the time being, because we're in a bank crisis, any bank failure, any any loss of uninsured deposits would have systemic consequences. Therefore, the FDIC is going to insure everything for the time being, like they they, they can do that, they can say that I don't understand they do why that. they haven't said that. Um, and, you know, when and like the guy from the economist asked jay powell this at the press conference on wednesday he was like look are you saying that like we have a de facto unlimited deposit guarantee for the time being and powell was very careful he says well i'm not saying anything more than i'm saying and he's like choosing his words very carefully and then Yellen comes up in congress and they're like you know are you thinking about ensuring all deposits and she's like no we haven't talked about that it's like i don't understand why they're being so cautious about just saying look we're in the bank crisis we're fine you know everything's fine right now they're strongly implying it They're clearly sending that signal to the message that message to the markets but you know as you say emily quite correctly that message is not getting through to depositors but um elizabeth to your question yes they used the ESF to backstop the discount window like what's happened is that the fed has said if you have any kind of bank run any deposit run and you need liquidity you can borrow that from the fed and they will lend against your bonds at par at face value not at market value and that theoretically opens up the fed to the risk of loss if the bank goes bust and they have to foreclose on the bonds and then they have to sell the bonds at the loss and in that rather remote possibility of loss, then the exchange stabilization fund is there to sort of guarantee the Fed's losses on that. So they've already used yeah. the ESF to try and, like, prevent runs.
0: Yeah, I wonder if, uh, you know, some of the hesitancy to just come right out and say this is, is simply political because there is a huge Freedom Caucus, uh, you know, Backlash against the idea of increasing deposits or anything that might be even an equivalent of a universal guarantee. Uh, and so they may That's just true. be trying to avoid politicization of it, but I, I agree that I, I think it's, you know, uh, undermines what they're trying to do. They're not just communicating it, it effectively.
2: <laughs> just say yeah, it,
0: Janet Yellen. Just I'm
3: not even, honestly, I'm not even seeing this as a left-right issue. Like... I, I don't think that we have a situation here where, like, the left wing wants unlimited deposit insurance and the right wing is worried about moral hazard. Like, uh, you yeah,
0: know, no, there it's, are it's definitely, definitely it's a it's a minority minority right wing constituency. They just happen to be very vocal and are led by Josh Hawley. So,
3: yeah, I, I don't I don't think that Janet Yellen is being coy because she's worried about upsetting Josh Hawley. I feel
0: like she's
2: being well, I don't know. I can't speculate why they're not just saying what needs to be said. It, it's I, my theory
3: is it, that, I, I, my, well, my theory is twofold, right? One is the Yellen and Powell, well, Powell is absolutely unelected. Yellen is part of the, you know, democratically elected Biden administration. Like when she moved from the Fed to Treasury, she basically became a politician. Um, but she's mm-hmm. the most technocratic form of politician she doesn't feel like she's a politician right and what technocrats do when they're being asked to sort of make policy on the fly is they always try and let the politicians make that decision rather than you know making it themselves um, and so my gut feeling here is that yellen and powell are really punting to biden on this and what i wrote in um, axios markets this weekend is is basically that what we need to solve this problem is not a clearer statement from Janet Yellen. It's not a clearer statement from Jay Powell. It's a clearer statement from Joe Biden, that Joe Biden should be coming out as the communicator-in-chief and saying, hey, guys, your deposits are safe. If any bank fails, we will make sure that uninsured deposits are safe. If Joe Biden came out and said that, then both Yellen and Powell would be much more comfortable saying that explicitly. Plus, we would be getting it from, you know, the man himself. And I do not understand why neither Biden nor Harris has said nothing about this.
0: Well, there would be a knee-jerk backlash on the right, especially from our uh, existing Republican presidential candidates to find a reason to oppose it, because at this point, uh, politics is, or electoral politics is so driven by negative partisanship that right, there like, Republicans who would normally agree Biden with says, it.
3: Everything that Biden says is opposed by the right. Like you can't, you can't like run your presidency on the basis of I can't say anything because my opponents will disagree with me.
0: I I, I say that to Democrats all the time. <laughs> I'm just telling you what I think the calculus might be there.
3: But explain that calculus. So by Biden, so Biden comes out and says something clear about deposits. Um, you know, Trump or DeSantis or someone like that comes out and says. This is terrible. This is socialism. You know, they do whatever they do.
0: Yeah, they would say why that was a that doorway bad? to bailouts. Sure, they okay, would fine. make an argument, why- and also because this is an this is not an issue that the average person really understands. But they they do know there's right. you know average person backlash against bailing out big wealthy institutions, and that's how this would be positioned by the Republican right even though, you know, there, there's not among moderates. No, no. You know, people... So I 100 I yeah. percent,
3: I, I agree that you would get this position. You would get like the scientists or something saying bailout. Right. And so that, you know, we, we posit that. Explain to me why that is bad for Biden.
0: Because there's a constituency of Democratic leadership who believes that Democrats only win when they're able to convince moderate Republicans to switch parties. And they're very powerful. And, you know, Democratic leadership listens to them. There, there's a huge constituency you're saying, of donors the, And you're that. saying
3: that the moderate Republicans would, like, turn on Biden because they would think that, like, his safety and soundness regime for the banking sector was socialist bailoutism. I don't know. Anyway, the whole thing seems ludicrous to me
0: and I think that we need I'm not saying you know, I, buy, I, th- I I'm not Emily saying I has, buy the logic. I'm yeah. just telling you what I think it is.
2: I think this is an interesting issue though for the for the politics um because like that that exchange I was talking about with Janet Yellen at the Senate, that was with a Republican from Oklahoma who was like it's not fair if you bail out the uninsured depositors at this one bank if you don't bail them out at my Oklahoma bank. So I feel like they're the the space around uh like local regional small banks is sort of politically could be different because so many of these lawmakers you know come from places with like small local banks that are donors or whatever and they might have a different perspective if it's i I agree i think if you, if you
3: come out and say your regional banks in oklahoma are safe you know i feel like your moderate republicans in oklahoma are gonna like that but i am not an expert on politics i don't don't know (laughs) um but i do i do actually want to stick on the question of politics because we have a super interesting political question um in congress this week about tiktok so that's coming up next
0: On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced.
3: I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer and I I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe.
0: And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay,
3: so I love this TikTok thing. And the TikTok thing, just to be clear, is the CEO of TikTok coming up in front of Congress and being grilled by a bunch of very ornery politicians on both sides of the aisle. And one of the reasons I love it is because it is one of the areas where you have genuine bipartisan agreement. Um, Republicans and Democrats seem to both be in agreement that TikTok is bad and should probably be banned or to or be sold or something, something, China something. And normally, when you have strong bipartisan agreement on this kind of thing, it is pretty obvious that politicians because they literally make the law, get what they want. And what is fascinating to me, is that the politicians who literally make the law, and who are in agreement on this TikTok thing, there's a very good chance they are not going to get what they want and that TikTok is going to remain a Chinese company. And so, Elizabeth, explain to me what is going on here.
0: So the the TikTok CEO is, is in front of Congress this week to defend the company against uh, allegations that the software is being used to spy on Americans that TikTok is, you know, not healthy for children and teenagers. Uh, that its algorithms, you know, make kids depressed. I mean, a whole range of concerns. The the most legitimate of one, in, in my view, is just the the surveillance aspect of it. You know, TikTok does present, I think, a real security risk, and that's where part of this bipartisan support is coming from, is a, a sort of general distrust of China. Uh, one thing that struck me watching some of the hearings, though. Uh, if you've watched congressional hearings with regard to anything that, that is about technology, uh, you often find that the, the elected officials don't really understand the tech. And there was a little bit of that happening. There were two Congress people who referred to TikTok as Tic repeatedly. Uh, and mm-hmm. so a lot of them don't necessarily even understand the cybersecurity implications uh, they just know that we have a cybersecurity threat from China and TikTok seems like one of the most prominent available vectors because it's so heavily used in America. I think there are 150 Americans on TikTok.
2: Million. Right. Oh,
0: sorry. Yeah. 150 so, million. Yeah. more <laughs> 150. I can yes. I, I, yes.
3: I, But yeah. So, so you know, posited yes. There are lots of people who believe that TikTok is a security threat. But that's my whole point, right, is that like. It doesn't matter whether they're right or not. It doesn't matter whether TikTok is a security threat. You know, um, it doesn't matter whether China has the ability to press some kind of button and turn TikTok into a propaganda machine or into like you know some dystopian thing from Infinite Jest, where everyone just gets glued to their phones and loses all productivity. Which is literally a thesis that I have read, where they're like you know. This is this is China's geopolitical strategy is to turn us into a nation of zombies who are glued to our TikTok and we lose all productivity. <laughs> like it, there is a bunch of crazy shit out there. Um,
0: the idiocracy matter, thesis, right? the, I think.
3: The point the point here is that all these, you know, the smart people in Congress and the morons in Congress manage have managed to come to the same conclusion, which is that they're worried about TikTok and that they don't want it to be owned by the Chinese and they have a clear majority in Congress to pass a law, to do something about it. Why aren't they going to do that? Like what's going to happen is that CFIUS is going to come out with some decision and there's going to be a long court case. Like why, like what, why, why are the politicians reduced to just shouting at a CEO rather than doing the thing that's effective, which is, which is making laws.
2: Because we are a nation of laws, Felix, and you can't just go around banning stuff willy-nilly, as the Trump administration learned when it tried to ban TikTok during his reign. And it went to court and the Trump administration was told, like, you can't just ban it. You have to see if there are other ways you can rein it in so it's less of a security threat. So that's what the Biden administration and I recommend um, listening to What Next TBD on this, which came out Friday, which is goes really deep on this. But so the Biden administration has been trying to do that kind of build a case to show why they can't just rein in TikTok in other ways, and they have to do an outright ban. That's, that's kind of why I think. Also, I'll just say there is one lawmaker, one brave soul, Jamal Bowman from New York, who is a Congress, Congressman from a neighboring district from where I live, who has come out and said, This is crazy. People need to calm down about this. And I have to say, I know that I'm supposed to be worried. I've had arguments with my um, Axios Markets co-writer about this. I know I'm supposed to be worried about the Chinese spying on, on me and on TikTok, but I'm not. And I think it is a panic. And a lot of the criticisms raised in Congress this week about TikTok could be raised about any social network. You know, they're worried about the the kids and their young brains, which, okay, right, like ban a gun. Um, but like the, the same could be said for uh, Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. I mean, all the same concerns are there. And I think there is like a like a parallel push now to maybe pass some privacy legislation or something along those lines that's more broader addressing those issues. But it kind of does seem a little bit like your typical panic over a foreign company without a whole lot of evidence about spying the one example everyone points to and um lizzie o'leary on what next talks to the reporter in this case the one example is that TikTok tock uh, tried to get the data of some u.s reporters to find out like who was leaking to them but that's something that's happened with u.s companies and it's not really what the na- It doesn't seem like a national security threat. I mean, I don't want companies spying um, using technology on reporters, but like Uber did that a few years ago. TikTok doing it isn't unprecedented and didn't seem like an example of the nation state of China um, doing something nefarious. So.
3: so I 100% agree. I think the China paranoia has gone completely batshit Um, I think the idea that the Chinese Communist Party can like insert spyware into TikTok that it can then use to exfiltrate personal data that it can then use for you know some weird info war against the United States that is like this weird vector of um, weakness that we're exporting the whole thing is just sci-fi to me and it is the th- the thing that worries me about it is that it is completely unfalsifiable right anyone can come up with any you know outlandish theory and say well it's a risk we should be worried about mm-hmm. this risk because it's a risk and you can say like this is completely right but it's a risk can you prove that it's impossible it's <laughs> like no you can't prove that it's impossible but like can we just stay on the in the grounds of like things that we know are possible But no, apparently we can't stay within the grounds of things that we know are possible, and we need to worry about things that we have no idea whether they're even possible or not. And as you say, Emily, like, there's no evidence that the Chinese Communist Party has used TikTok at all. Um, And, you know, so... And and, and this whole concept of, like, we need to be worried about a propaganda vector. You know, like, like, seriously, we're not living in 1914 anymore. Let's just... uh, (laughs) So I'm with you and Jamal Bowman on this, but I am clearly <laughs> yeah. in the minority. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and I, it does strike me that, you know, what the Trump administration tried to do was ban TikTok unilaterally just by, like, executive order. And that is clearly illegal. And the court said, go away. My point is that Congress can pass a law. We are a nation of laws, as you said. And Congress can pass a law saying, you know, The Chinese company is not allowed to own a social media network or something, right? Dress it up in all of the national security concerns that they like. And they're not going to. And this is going to wind up in the courts. And there isn't going to be a law that they can point to saying that TikTok has to be sold. And for that reason, there's a good chance that it won't be. And the thing that just confuses me is why are they reduced to shouting at a CEO on the telly when they actually have lawmaking power.
0: Well, I mean, normally a hearing like this is a precursor to potentially making laws around it. Uh, But also we should mention that there's one other option that the TikTok CEO put on the table, which is uh, what they're calling Project Texas, where all of the American data is stored and managed by Oracle in the U.S., and they're making an argument but that's not that- an
3: option that's that that's the status quo that's that is where we are at right now and that is the thing that the american lawmakers seem to consider insufficient like like project. i think texas they're trying to implement project well, texas like it is not fully implemented yet but tiktok is implementing it and they have said very clearly that this is what they are doing you know this isn't this isn't something that's, that they're offering up as a possibility like if you want us to do this, we can do this. They are already doing it. They are in in the process of of, of implementing it right now. It's not like yeah, it's not an option. It is it is going to happen anyway, unless you know they're forced to just sell the whole thing.
2: Did you know there's some precedent that Grinder had to was owned by Chinese investors and yeah. was forced to so be CFIUS
3: sold. Forced
2: and went public last CFIUS year.
3: Forced the acquisition of Grinder. Um, which is so much easier because it was like a company that was bought and then could be sold. Whereas TikTok yeah. is, you know, it, it's really part of ByteDance. You know, it's, it's very hard just on a sort of technological level to see how, because the technology, because the algorithm is a ByteDance algorithm, it's hard to see how TikTok could exist as a product without using this algorithm that is owned by a Chinese company.
2: What a what a mess! Plus, who would? I mean, every story that talks about this says who would be big enough to even buy TikTok? You you wouldn't want Meta or Facebook to buy it because then that would be antitrust. And like, who else would do it? Only the companies could do it are too big. Blah 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 blah. So I don't know how that would work. Do you
3: exactly? Do well, I mean, you know, the the the, the obvious <laughs> company would be would be Oracle. But like, yeah, does Oracle really want to own a social media network? Come on, that's not what it does. That's
2: no. That's a bad idea. Oracle owning TikTok. That's so that seems incredibly uncool.
3: Exactly. Who wants <laughs> that? Like that? No one wants that. No one wants Larry <laughs> no. Ellison running. TikTok. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. Larry Ellison is much more likely to interfere in TikTok than, you know, the Chinese Communist Party. It'll turn into we already see, we've already seen what happens when a crazy Silicon Valley billionaire takes over a social network. We don't need another one. Come on, we we've already got like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg owning social networks. Let's not have a third,
0: please. I would pay to watch Illyria listen TikTok though. But which Olson would be better,
2: Elon Musk owning TikTok or or the Chinese Communist Party having oversight over TikTok?
3: Oh my god, can you imagine if Elon Musk owned TikTok and Twitter? Oh god, that would be that would be very <laughs> very very bad. <laughs> come come would come stop back, China. It, all so. is forgiven. um let's have a numbers round uh emily do you have a number
2: yeah my number is nine that's nine percent that is the increase from 2019 to 22 in hourly wages for the bottom 10 percent in the united states so that wages went up at the bottom by nine percent it was bigger than any other income category Um, this was a report from the economic policy institute they looked at um census microdata and this is adjusted for inflation so it's a real it's a real raise and it all sounds amazing but then it means uh, the 9% means that hourly wages are now up to $12.42 which is not a lot of money but still notable um it's these are this is a percentage increase no one's ever seen before at the low end and i thought it was really interesting um, I mean, we all know that's tight labor market, blah, 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 low unemployment. But one thing that made this possible was that everyone got, you know, at the low low end of the scale, basically everyone got fired in COVID and laid off. And that sort of severing was a good thing, it turned out, for people um, at the bottom of the pay scale because they were given the freedom thanks to the fiscal support to kind of find something better, you know. Um, which when you're, you know, working all the time, you're not really looking so hard. Um, so they call it, um, the EPI people are calling it severed monopsony, which I didn't write about because I didn't think anyone in, would care, In my book I, I call
3: it, I have, I have a chapter of my book called it, where, where I talk about shaking the edge of sketch you know, like, which is. <laughs> there you
2: go. Yeah.
3: A, <laughs> that's much a better, better. You know, that, that's, my, which is a metaphor I actually stole from Dave Girard, who's this, um, Entrepreneur in, in California, but yeah, we just shook everything up and rebuilt it from a, a better foundation of more money. And it's absolutely astonishing to me how many people think that the pandemic increased inequality when, in fact, it decreased inequality.
2: I know. <laughs> I mean, it's still pretty uh, crap to be at the bottom ten percent.
3: But yeah, yeah, no, no one's saying that like it's good to be poor, but it's better to be poor than it was. Um, Elizabeth, what's your number?
0: Uh, my number is 159 and that's dollars, and this number comes from a story I was reading about an increase in pet ownership and higher costs for owning a pet. So for $159, you can buy an implant for your pet called Neuticals, and these implants help neuter-hesitant pet owners overcome the trauma of altering and allow their beloved pet to retain its natural look and self-esteem so if you don't want to get your pet neutered you can buy this specific implant that somehow does the trick but allows your pet to keep its self-esteem you mean and by self-esteem we
3: mean testicles it's, uh, yes
0: and it warrants owner's self-esteem i suppose but this is an yes. expense that as it, a it's pe- basically, pet it's owner,
3: basically I... truck nuts for your cat
0: yes yes Oh my goodness! <laughs> what will they think of next? Jake Gyllenhaal bought them for his German Shepherd, apparently.
2: Oh yeah, because the German Shepherd that's gotta retain its I don't What am I? <laughs> Shh. Go ahead. Do you? I, I here, love you the like?
3: fact that both of you are like really hesitant to say the word testicles. <laughs> <of> <laughs> <laughs>
2: This is sleep yes, money. Is,
3: we, we have sleep money succession. We're going to say a lot worse words than <laughs> testicles. Um, my number is 60.7 billion, which is a dollar amount. It's the number of dollars that UBS is taking as bad will in the acquisition of Credit Suisse. And this is... A bad will number that is, I'm pretty sure, by some extraordinarily large margin, the largest amount of bad will that any M&A deal has ever had in the history of the world. Um, Elizabeth, do you know what goodwill is in M&A?
0: Uh, it's, it's a sort of value of, um, oh, I can't remember, I can't think of like a way to describe it. its It's sort of. No, you. I. You know so, what? So, I'm not going to try. <laughs> okay.
3: So, <laughs> so in most M and A deals, what you have is a, a company which, let's say, it has assets of three billion dollars, right? And then what you do is you get some acqu- acquirer coming along and saying, "We want to buy your company," and they're like, oh, "How much are you going to pay?" and and they say, "Well, we'll pay you four billion dollars," and so when they do that because of the way that bookkeeping works they have to they lose four billion dollars which is the amount that they're paying for the for the asset for the company and then what they gain is three billion dollars of actual assets and then there's one billion dollars that you need to account for somehow and so the way they account for it is goodwill like they're saying you know things like brand value or just like you know we we, we synergies that kind of thing, right? They they're like we we are, we're going to pay an extra one billion dollars of goodwill. It's going to sit on our balance sheet as like the extra value that this company has over and above its like actual asset value.
0: Yeah, I was searching for the word premium, and for some reason, my perimenopausal brain just could not find it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so
3: yeah, it's exactly it's it's the premium that you're paying basically over and above the asset value that you're, of the Oh asset
2: that no, so Badwill is going the opposite direction.
3: So basically, UBS acquired Credit Suisse for sixty billion dollars less than its than asset assets.
2: value. Wow! And so good deal. they
3: are getting sixty billion dollars of you know assets for free, uh, which that. is kind of amazing.
2: I love that so much. That's like a good sale. You're like, these pants cost a hundred dollars, but I only paid fifty, and that's like a good thing. Exactly.
3: So, yeah, well done, UBS. There's there's a nice little chunk of change for you which should help smooth the transition to, you know, merging with Credit Suisse. Um, so I think that wraps up for this week, guys. We have something very special happening on Monday, which is the very first episode of Slate Money Succession. Well, actually, like the... 21st episode of State Money um, Succession but the first for season four you have to watch Succession on Sunday obviously because it's coming back Um, and as ever when Succession is back State Money Succession is also back and we're going to recap the first episode with Jim Stewart of the New York Times who's amazing who knows everything there is to know about Sumner Redstone and he's going to talk about how Sumner and Logan Roy are similar and different. Um, that's all coming up on Monday. And then right now, if you're a Slate Plus member, we get to talk about Rupert Murdoch because he's getting married again. Obviously, this is very Logan Roy um, and Succession-ish. All that's happening on Slate Plus and Monday, Slate Money Succession. Thank you to Patrick Ford for producing. Thank you all for sending in your emails, at slatemoneyatslate.com. And we'll be back next week with more Sleep Money.